there are three uh, key drivers of hunger. The first one is conflicts. Then we have climate extremes and then we have economic shocks. And climate shocks such as drought, storms, floods, heat waves, they cause increasing losses and damages to the systems that produce food and that bring it to people's tables. Uh, but then we are equally worried about lower level climate variations and stresses. They play a role also in chronic hunger. So we're talking about irregular rainfall, changing seasons, um, rising salinity in soils and groundwater, shifts in pest infestations, heat stress in livestock. So all these things um, are making um, households more vulnerable. And in such strained conditions, chronic hunger can then turn into a life-threatening acute situation very quickly, even when smaller shocks hit. So the the second element that, that does not necessarily get as much airtime as the climate disasters is the climate stresses and the, the, the less visible impacts. And then there's a third pathway through which the climate crisis drives hunger, which is via displacement, social tensions and conflict. So climate impacts, they aggravate resource scarcity, uh, they displace people, and that can then fuel social and political tensions. Once these tensions erupt in violence and conflict, then people become extremely vulnerable and unable to, to manage any other risks in their livelihoods. So when you look into uh, the top 20 countries that are currently classified as the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change and the least able to adapt, then more than half are in conflict. And in these countries where we have people that experience both climate shocks and conflict and, and violence, then hunger is most severe there. In the paths that you mentioned, uh, those problems that uh, exist, are there solutions? Are there any innovations out there? And is there a way to implement those solutions? When you look at the types of solutions that you find in WFP country programs, then there is one important element, which is about anticipation and preparedness. Most climate disasters are predictable. Uh, the science used to forecast them is increasingly reliable. So if we make effective use of forecasts, risk analysis, early warning information, then it is possible to put in place the actions and the financing that's needed to act before a climate disaster hits and not wait until people are already in life-threatening situations. So when a, a particular weather forecast tells us that a climate hazard is about to hit, then we aim to release early warning advisories, cash transfers, and other services in partnership with governments and local partners. And with these resources, vulnerable people can prepare for these shocks and mitigate their impacts. Um, another element that's important is, is financial protection and risk sharing. Um, not many people know this, but WFP is the one UN organization that applies climate risk insurance solutions at scale. So far in 2023, we've connected 5 million people with climate risk insurance solutions and services in 26 countries. And in areas affected by droughts, floods and storms, insurance payouts uh, have already benefited 500,000 people. So there is not only an immediate opportunity to go to a bigger scale with these insurance um, solutions, there's also an opportunity to strengthen the capacities of governments um, so that they understand which risk financing solutions work best in which countries and which, which contexts. And then lastly, I would say 
um, what's really important in, in, in the current uh, state of the climate crisis, we need a surge in locally led climate change adaptation and disaster risk reduction projects. Um, in WFP, for example, uh, we have worked for decades with community-based resilience programs, which help to restore degraded ecosystems and infrastructure, help people adopt uh, regenerative farming practices, increase natural resource efficiency. Um, and over the past five years, these programs have rehabilitated around 1.7 million hectares of land, which is now not only delivering um, local adaptation services, but also global carbon benefits. So those are the three elements that I would I would uh, mention um, anticipation and preparedness, ramping up uh, financial protection and then locally led disaster risk reduction and, and climate change adaptation. You mentioned uh, insurance. Could you um, explain a little bit more how this uh, insurance works? Is it some kind of public private partnership with the participation of uh, the WFP, the international organization? What kind of instrument is that? There are two types of insurance uh, that we work with. The very first one is micro insurance, which is when a smallholder farmer household is the insurance policy holder. And just like we can distribute cash or food uh, or vouchers, we can also distribute insurance coverage in our large community-based resilience programs. Uh, the second type of insurance coverage is then where WFP itself is buying insurance against catastrophic drought events, for example, through uh, an instrument that's called the African Risk Capacity, ARC. Um, last year, when I count both micro and macro insurance, these insurance protection has reached 3.8 million people in 21 countries. And alone through this ARC replica program where WFP has purchased insurance, um, then following failed rainfall seasons in Mali, Burkina Faso, the Gambia, these programs have triggered $15 million in payouts, which we have then implemented as early food and cash assistance. So this has then basically complemented the public funding for emergency response with insurance-based mechanisms and thereby reduce the humanitarian financing gap that we're facing. Microinsurance is really, I would say, a long-term contribution to de-risking food systems. So if a smallholder farmer has access to insurance protection, then they also have better access to financial services. They have a different savings behavior. They can take more risk, for example, switching into different crop types, diversifying crops. So this is more, I would say, a, a longer-term adaptation investment. If we work with sovereign insurance and if we make climate risk insurance products work for the humanitarian sector, then we can really crowd in additional financing, private sector financing, into what is otherwise a publicly funded humanitarian response system. Uh, so this is a slightly in a slightly different space. This is where then we try to address this uh, element of usually not enough funding being available after climate disasters to meet all the humanitarian needs that are out there. But it's true. I mean, there are existing solutions. We need to tailor these solutions to the different risk contexts. This kind of uh, solutions and many others are going to be discussed uh, during the upcoming COP28 climate conference. What are your expectations? What deliverables do you think this conference can bring for the further advancement of such uh, solutions and many others in order to mitigate the consequences of climate change? 
One thing we really hope to see um, at this particular conference of parties are greater commitments for climate action in fragile and vulnerable settings. So we have had decades now where the temperature curve has really kept climbing. Uh, adaptation financing was often too little too late. And so many communities on the front lines of the climate crisis now find themselves in this in this era of loss and damage. They do not have time until we have phased out fossil fuels, until we have more adaptation funding available, until we have reformed uh, multilateral climate funds. So these communities are now facing clear and present danger, and it's a matter of being hit by these climate extremes in a few months from now and not just a few years from now. So for us, a big uh, metric at this COP is whether we see clear commitment to ramp up climate protection for the most vulnerable people in the most vulnerable settings. And this can be measured also by a better balance in, in climate finance allocations and climate finance flows. WFP is supporting in this context a, a declaration, the COP28 declaration on climate relief, recovery and peace, which will be launched on the 3rd of December, which is uh, relief, recovery and peace day. And we will hope that this declaration will increase political visibility of this issue and then highlight the need to ramp up climate action in fragile contexts, because these are the contexts that have the escalating humanitarian needs that at the current point in time cannot be met with the available humanitarian financing. The loss and damage fund uh, that has been negotiated uh, this year through the transitional committees, we hope that this fund will be operational. Um, at the same time, for us, the the litmus test for climate justice is in protection at the local level. So it is not enough, I think, to transfer funding from one country to another. For us, the metric for climate justice is protection before lives are in danger and before the international humanitarian system needs to come in and, and help save lives. So we hope that this loss and damage fund will be established. We hope that it focuses on fast, locally focused action in order to protect the most vulnerable. But what do you think is the role of an individual in this process? How can an ordinary person there be part of the climate action? Well, of course, there are certain things that everybody can do individually uh, in their own families. Um, it starts, of course, from realizing how individual action is connected with the with the global climate for example that uh, the food that we put our put on our tables um, matters to the climate uh, in various ways it also i think relates to learning more about the role of food loss and waste um, if taken together you know food loss and waste uh, if they were a country would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter so it starts from taking little decisions um, to make sure we do not waste our food, we eat uh, things that are have a low carbon footprint. Uh, we also should be ready, I think, to support climate action um, through local institutions, which are really anchored in the in the space where climate justice happens. Um, depending on where people live, I think there are various ways of engaging on climate action. 